Well, good morning, church, uh, and thank you, worship team. Uh, for those of you who I haven't met and you don't know me, uh, my name is, is Graham, and I have a privilege, just a wonderful privilege, to be one of the pastors here uh, at City Reach. Uh, and if you're joining us for the first time, or maybe you've been away for a while, we've been in a series called Simon Peter, and last week we finally came to the end of that. Uh, And today we start a three-part series looking at our values uh, as a church. Now, the first question we have to ask is, what is a value? Uh, According to the dictionary definition, it is a habitual devotion to a right or principles. Basically, it's something that we do all the time. Now, we can have stated values, but what we really want are functional values. Now, basically, that means is we don't want words that are just on a piece of paper that sound good and mean nothing. What we want is we really live them and do them. Uh, And basically, the only way you find out whether a value is real or not, whether it's lived out, is you spend time with people, right? It's basically seeing is believing. Uh, For example, if you were with a family and they said, hey, our value is honesty. We really value honesty. We always tell the truth. But you spend time with that family and you see that occasionally dad calls in sick, but really he goes fishing. Or maybe there's a phone call and you hear them say, oh, tell them I'm busy. Now, that doesn't matter what the stated value is for that family. The truth is, the real value is, hey, it's okay to lie sometimes. It's okay to bend the truth a little. Uh, About a year ago, as a staff team, we got together and we said, hey, we we want some values that really, we wanna shape shape us, how we do things, how we live out, how we relate to each other. And so we came up with five values that we all agreed to, we we spoke about them. In fact, we got a big poster made of it and we stuck it up. Uh, Josh got us little photo frames and we all put it on our desk. Now that is absolutely useless if we don't actually do that. We don't actually live them out. So City Reach, what are our values? What do we value? It's actually in our, in our mission statement. So our mission statement, which you might know quite well, says this, uh, we exist to bring glory to God and joy to the city. And we could stop there, and that is the most beautiful thing. Uh, that we aim to do. Now, how we do that, one of the ways that we do that is a strategy by planting churches. It's not the only strategy we have, but it's one of the strategies that we have. And uh, uh, two people who were planted out of City Reach Oakton, that's Pastor Lawson and Pastor Andrew Green, uh, they're actually gonna come back and help the series. So next week we'll have Pastor Lawson with us and then uh, Pastor Andy Green is gonna finish it off for us. But it goes on to say this, that make disciples who live out their new identity. There it is, the first value. In Christ, we are new, and we get to live that out. The second one, through community, and the third, on mission. Now, they can't just be words. In the same way that the Bible can't just be words to us, Colossians 3, 16 tells us, it says, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, right? It is part of you, it is in you, it has to come out. That is the same way. It has to hit your heart and your will, the will to do it. 
So why these values? Out of all the values that we could have, why choose these? Well, we believe that as believers and followers of, of Christ, this is the most valued thing according to God's word. You see, one of the things that we, we struggle most with, even if we don't realize it, is our identity. And the question is, who am I? I mean, who am I really, right? Not what people think I am, not what people want me to be, but who am I really? I don't know if you've ever had that sensation where you feel like you're pretending to be someone. You know, maybe you're with a group of friends and you actually, you're not really interested in what they're interested in at all, but to, to, to fit in, you kind of pretend to be part of it. You know, every day we're being told to be something. Our, our friends are telling us, be something. Our parents are telling us to be something. Teachers are telling us to be something. YouTube influencers are telling us to be something. Culture is telling us to be something. Advertising is telling us to be something. But only in Christ, he already has made you something. He already has made you something. Now, live it out. And that is totally different. It's totally different. We need constantly be reminded who we are in Christ and what we have in Christ. Rhonda Rousey, she was uh, an Olympic judo medalist and she was also world champion at UFC. And she had defended her title six times and it came to her seventh attempt. And she was like, no one's gonna beat her, right? She's the overwhelming favorite, but she lost. And this is what she said about that loss, and it's very profound. It's actually deeply theological because it's about identity. This is what she said. Honestly, my thought in the medical room, I was sitting in the corner and was like, what am I anymore if I'm not this? Did you hear that? What am I anymore if I'm not this? Rousey said, sitting there thinking about killing myself. In that exact second, I'm like, I'm nothing. What do I do anymore? No one cares about me anymore without this. You know, there's someone who seemingly got everything. You know, she's done everything. But her identity was so wrapped up in who she was as a sports person that as soon as that was taken away, she lost everything. She lost who she was. And the truth is that that can happen to us. We can be so wrapped up in who we are in the work that we do. Maybe our academic achievements define who you are. Maybe it's the family that you're part of or even ministry. Whatever it is, you fill in the blank. But you ask this question, who am I? When that, when that fails, do we ask the question, what am I if I'm not this? You see, we, we live in a culture that is so success and outcomes focused that when that's working in our lives, we feel great. But when it's not going so well, we feel like a failure. You see, a, a job is, is a gift of God's provision to you. It's a wonderful thing, but when that becomes your identity, it just leads to 
to constant unhappiness because any of you who have a job will know that it's a bit like a roller coaster. You're up, you're down, good days, bad days. And if your identity is wrapped in that, you're unhappy all the time. Marriage. Marriage is the most wonderful gift from God. It's the most precious relationship that you can have on earth. But if your, your identity is wrapped up in your marriage, then you're basically asking your spouse to be your functional savior, your personal messiah. And that's a burden that they were never designed to carry and can't possibly carry. You know, your body. Your body is actually such an important aspect of who you are. But when your identity is so wrapped up in your body, then the moment aging or sickness comes along, it will just rob you of your sense of self. But, and this is a big but. Did I just say big but in church? That's <laughs> terrible. Okay, but it's a big stop, right? This is important. When we realize what we have or who we are in Christ, you don't have to pretend. Right? You know because I am my beloved and he is mine. And that's all we need. Right, when, when people ask you, who are you? We're so tempted to answer with what we do. Oh, I'm a, I'm a student. I'm a, I'm a teacher. I'm a chef. Whatever it is. But in Christ, when you were born again, you were born rich. Now, not materially wealthy, but the riches of his glorious grace. You see, our heavenly father is not poor and he's not stingy. Right? Bill Gates was once upon a time the wealthiest man in the world. And it was said that his time was so valuable that if Bill Gates was walking down the street and he saw a $100 bill on the ground, it would cost him more, he would lose more money if he stopped to pick it up. That's how, how much value his time was. And yet, all that money, all that material wealth, when compared to the spiritual wealth that is yours in Christ is nothing. We have every spiritual blessing. Now, it really was my hope at this point somebody would be excited about that and shout hallelujah or amen. Didn't sound convincing, all right. But anyway, it's true. I've just told you guys, you're like a gazillionaires in Christ. You know, in the Old Testament, uh, material blessing did come from obedience. And sometimes you get the sense that we might actually prefer that. But what we have in Jesus is so much better. It is so much better because we have every spiritual blessing. There was your opportunity. You missed it again, guys. Come on. We have every spiritual blessing. Thank you. You know, he doesn't promise to shield us from poverty or pain. But we have every spiritual blessing we need. And guys, I know we struggle with this, but the truth is the spiritual is far more important than the material. You know, the material will wear out. It'll fade away. Our bodies will wear out, but the spiritual will never, will never. To know who you are, you need to know what he's done. And Ephesians 1 just unpacks this beautiful thing of who he is and what he's done. Now, 
as, as Pastor Jeremy already said and Vinice said, it's just so rich that we can really just scratch the surface. But number one, God has chosen us. Verse four says this, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him. I don't know if you've ever had that experience or you've seen kids when they're out in the playground and they're about to play a game, maybe it's sports or whatever, and they're choosing teams. And they kind of organize themselves and they've selected two captains and they each have a turn picking one, one player. Have you guys ever seen that in the playground? All teachers have. Well, I can remember, this is a clear memory that I have. When I was uh, in primary school, we had such an occasion and we were about to play soccer. Now, the truth is I'm terrible at soccer. And two captains were selected. And it just so happens that one of the captains was a very good friend of mine. And he got to pick first. And out of everyone that he could have chosen, everyone that was super talented at soccer, he chose me. And it was a terrible choice. I wouldn't even have chosen me. I would have chosen people who were much better than me. But he chose me. He chose me. I didn't deserve it. God chose you. He chose you before the foundation of the world. He had you in mind. Your name was on his mind when he created the world. You know, we, we have this mystery of God's divine sovereignty and his human responsibility. You know, it, it will never be solved in this lifetime. But both are found in the Bible. Both are true and both are essential. So then rather trying to see it as this puzzle you gotta solve and try and work it out, just see it as God's grace and his love towards you, knowing that you are dearly loved and chosen. Paul takes that further, he says this, God has adopted us. In verse five and six it says this, in love he predestined us for the adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, which he has blessed us in the beloved. God is motivated by love. That is who he is. That's what motivates him. It's the same way good parents are motivated to love their children. You know, in, in Hebrew culture at that time, the concept of adoption just, just wasn't there. I mean, to take someone who wasn't in your blood family and, and to bring them in and count them as, as your family, to say, you're mine, I chose you, you are now part of me, you're part of my family. To give them the same legal rights as being a son and daughter, that, the Hebrew culture couldn't understand that at the time. Could you imagine a, a child born into absolute poverty? Nothing, right? But what's, what's worse is that the parents, they have nothing and they have no choice, but they just abandon their child. And they leave their child on the streets with nothing, right? Absolutely no chance, absolutely no hope. And then suddenly, a family comes along. But not just any family, a royal family, a king and a queen. And they leave their palace and they come and they, they, they walk amongst the dirty streets looking for this child, searching for this child. And they pick this child up 
This child that is dirty, without hope, nothing, and they say, this child, we are gonna care for you. They seek that child out. Now, they don't just give the child a fund or a sponsorship or a scholarship. No, they, they take that child into their family. They get them cleaned up and they lavish these gifts upon them. And then as that child grows up, they call them in and they say, we want to tell you something. That we've legally changed your name. You're now the king's son. What belongs to the king belongs to you. And you've got access to the king himself. Anytime you want, you can walk in and you can spend time with him. And you know what the best part is? You don't even have to call him king. You can call him dad. You can call him father. That's what adoption is. Guys, that's us. That's us. Now, I do want to say just a little bit about this misunderstood word, predestination. There's so much ink and debates built about this word. Now, in the Bible, it primarily refers to God's people, people that God has already saved. And the word simply means to ordain beforehand or to decide a destiny beforehand. You know, the destiny God wants for us is to know and behave as adopted sons and daughters. That's the destiny he's pre-planned for you. But the truth is, too often we live and think like orphans and not as children. Just for a second, let's go back to the garden, right? When God created man, Adam, and woman, Eve, they were made to get their identity in him. And for a while they did, and it was great, it was perfect, right? From this identity in him, they understood their meaning, their purpose, their identity was to give them guidance for daily living. Adam, first you are my son, then you are a gardener and a husband. So when Adam and Eve they acted in disobedience. It, wasn't much, it was much more than just eating the forbidden fruit. It was actually a rejection of the identity as creatures of God Almighty. And what they were doing is they were buying into an identity that didn't include God. Guys, it can happen to us. There's something that looks so good. It can look appealing to us. But when we actually try and take it and live it and we adopt this false identity, it leaves us broken and it leaves us poor. And God wants to move us to know that you're not an orphan, you're a child. So in what ways are we, are we often tempted to act like orphans? Well, number one, an orphan acts as if they don't have a father that loves them who wants the best for them. Orphans feel like they have to take care of themselves. Orphans feel like they've they got to protect themselves. Orphans feel that they can't depend on anyone. Orphans feel that they can never be weak. They can never show their weakness. They've always got to be strong. Orphans crave, deep down they crave to be taken in and loved, but the truth is they doubt that they're worthy ever to be. Orphans only ever trust themselves. You know, 
God doesn't want us to think like that. I would never want my kids to feel that. I would never want my kids to to feel that they don't have a dad who loves them, who wants the best for them, who cares for them, that's there for them. I would never want my kids to feel like they could never be weak. Never want my kids to feel that they're alone. God wants you to know that you are a child of God and that you're deeply loved. Number three, Christ has redeemed and forgiven us. Verse seven says this, in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. You know, to redeem means to purchase and set free by paying a price. Now, when Pastor Jeremy welcomed people here for the first time, he said that there's a, there's a coupon for coffee, and you can redeem it and get a free coffee. All you have to do is hand it in, and you'll get a free coffee. Now, the truth is that it's not really free. Someone else had to pay for it. You know, in the the Roman Empire, at the time the Bible was written, there were about 60 million slaves, and and they were were just treated like, like objects, like property, like furniture. You just bought and sold them. But every now and then, someone would come along and they would purchase a slave, and they would set them free. They would purchase them out of that bondage with their own money, and then set them free. That's what Jesus did for us. That's what he did for us. And the price he paid, the price he paid was costly. It costs you nothing, but it cost him everything. The price that he paid for was his blood. His blood. And because of his blood, we've been set free. We've been set free from the sin of slavery. We've been freed from the power of of Satan and the world. You know, if we, if we think and behave like orphans, that means we, we're poor and we don't need to be. Because we're sons and daughters of King Jesus, we're, we're rich. We're rich. You know, the, the world is, is looking, always looking for answers to solve its problems. They get together these expensive think tanks and think, how can we solve the world's problems? If we, if we just educated people more, if we just gave them more education, then, then our problems would be gone. If we, if we just really looked after the environment and, and, and we've, everyone focused their attention on looking after the environment, then all our problems would be gone. If we, if, if we just made sure that everybody had more money, then, then, we, then we'd be fine. You know, the Bible says the biggest problem is sin. And the answer is forgiveness. You know, on the, the Jewish day of atonement, Yom Kippur, the priest had two goats. And the first goat he would take and he would slit its throat. He would kill it. A costly price to pay for sin. And he would take that blood and he would sprinkle it on the mercy seat of God. But then he would take that second goat And he would lay his hands on it and he would confess the sins of Israel, the sins of the nation. And it would be like those sins were transferred onto that goat. 
and he would confess the sins onto the goat. And then that goat would be taken out into the wilderness to be lost, never to be found. You know, when, when Christ died to take away our sins, to take away our sins, it means that they are never to be seen again. Right? Jesus said, as far as east is from the west, that's how far they, they've gone from you. They lost. I don't know if you understand that, that no written accusation exists against you. Right? Our sins have been taken away. There's no record of them. Now, I shouldn't tell you the story, but it was before I was a Christian, so please understand it with that grace. But I was about 16, and when you're 16, you think you're amazing. Uh, and I thought I was that amazing that I would ride around on the streets on my motorbike without a helmet. Now, please don't do that, that's a bad idea. Um, but one day, I was riding my bike without a helmet up the road, and a police car came the other way. Uh, and Julie proceeded to chase me for about 30 seconds. He won, I didn't, pulled me over, and wrote out this massive fine. And I was a 16-year-old high school student. I, it was very expensive, so I had to go and basically tell my mom. She gave me the money after lots of complaining and, and groaning and groveling. She gave me the money, which I would then have to pay back. And I went in to pay the fine. And as I stood there, I said, this is the fine, here's the number. They said, we've got no record of this. It was never submitted. We've got no record of this fine ever being issued. And at that moment, it was probably the first time I ever prayed. I said, thank you for the South African organizational system that doesn't work so well, that they lose stuff. But it was lost. It was lost. You know, I walked out free. I said to them, so what, what, do, what do I do now? And she said, you're free to go. No fine, nothing, you're free to go, it's been lost. You know, sin makes us poor, but grace has made us rich. You know, number four, the Holy Spirit sealed us. Verse 13 and 14 says this, in him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promise, Holy Spirit, who's the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. Now, what's the significance of the sealing of the Holy Spirit? Well, basically, it's, it's, it's a finished transaction. It's done. You, if you ever look at legal documents that you have to sign and you process them, there's an official seal that stamps them and says, this is finished. It is complete. Another thing says a sealing implies ownership. You see, God has put his seal on us. That belongs to me. You are mine. He's purchased you. And, and it means we, when you know that, when you know who you belong to, it means the security and this protection. I don't know if you've ever been to a, a, an auction where they auction a house, right? A property auction. And anyway, there's a lot of excitement that goes past. But when that house is sold, what is the first thing that they do? First thing that you do is, is you put down a deposit. And then what they do is they go inside and they take this big sticker. And the sticker says, I'm taken. And they take that sticker and they stick it on the property sign outside. That's exactly what Jesus has done for you. 
It's like he's got a big sticker on you. He sealed you. You're taken. You're mine. Sealed. Ownership. It's a guarantee of what's coming. You know, another thing that the seal does is it's a mark of authenticity. It's genuine. It's real. You know, if you, if you get given a piece of paper to sign, you're making it real. This is genuine. This is me. It's not a fake. It is real. You know, and the, the spirit that dwells in us is, is proof of the genuineness that you belong to him. You know, it's, it's not just, not just the, the profession of our lips or, or religious activity or good works. No, it's the witness that we have of the spirit inside us that makes our profession authentic. We belong to him. His seal is on us. You know, I saw a cartoon a few years ago, which I, I thought was actually pretty funny. But uh, in this cartoon, there was this family and they were meeting with the lawyer. And the lawyer was about to read out the will of someone who had just died. And, and obviously, they're probably quite wealthy. And the, the family were all waiting to see what would be said in the will. And the lawyer read it out. And this is what it said. It said, I, John Jones, of sound mind, declare I spent it all. And then you, you look at the, fa the family's like shocked and like, oh, <gasps> But you know, the truth is for us, Jesus paid it all. He paid it all. That's the guarantee we have. We didn't deserve it. You know, when we forget who we are, we, we actually lose what's rightfully ours. You know, we, we compromise on things. But when we realize who we are in Christ and what his death has done, what his, his resurrection means, you're able to walk in the spirit. You're able to endure hardship. You're able to endure misunderstanding. You're able to endure persecution because you know who you are in him. You know, the truth is we, we never graduate from the gospel. There's never a time where you feel like, oh, I don't need the gospel anymore. I've got to move on to deeper stuff. No, we all need reminder of the gospel. And the question today is, have you forgotten who you are in Christ? Guys, encourage one another. Encourage one another. Encourage someone this week. Let them know who they are in Christ. Remind them, you are not an orphan. You are a child. I want to finish by uh, telling you a story of, of very good friends of mine. Uh, so, Jenny... Uh, who I've known since we were, we were about 14 years old. So not that long ago. Uh, you, some of you will get that. But anyway, Jenny uh, was a very good friend of mine, and she married another friend of mine called Drummond. And they were this beautiful Christian couple, uh, and they really struggled to have kids for quite a while. Uh, but finally, Jenny fell pregnant, and they had Ethan, their first child, and then... Uh, they had Luke, their second child. And, and Luke was born with a condition. This is a picture of Luke over there. Um, and when he was born, Drummond wrote this. Uh, he says, as we celebrate WDSD 19, I want to share, I wanted to share a quick story. When Lukey was born, we did not know he would be diagnosed with Down syndrome. 
It was only on the second day that the doctor suggested we run the tests. Due to where we live, it took a full 10 days for those results to come back, confirming our little man had that extra magic chromosome. While many people might think being in limbo for almost two weeks would be tremendously stressful, for us, it took only one minute to realize that the results of the tests were the absolute definition of irrelevant. Irrelevant, didn't matter at all. And our family was blessed beyond measure to have this little angel to complete it. You know, as parents, the very first thing they decided, first and foremost, Luke was their son. He was part of their family. That's what his identity was. It wasn't Down syndrome. It was who he was. And you know, that was challenged all the time. Family challenged it. And they just talked about Luke having Down syndrome. Friends just talked about Luke being Down syndrome. Even when they went to the supermarket, people would refer to Luke as Down syndrome. You know, it happens to us all the time. Our identity is going to be challenged. Tomorrow, when you wake up and you go to work, or you go to school, or you go to university, your identity is going to be challenged. But because they made that determination and they treated Luke like part of their family, they made sure he was known as their son. What it did is it gave Luke this, this unbelievable joy and confidence that he was part of this family. And because of that, he was, he was able to bring such joy and love to the family. You know, they talk about how Luke changed their family and brought this joy that they never knew into their lives. You know, they faced another challenge when, when Luke was diagnosed with leukemia. And again, cancer didn't become his identity. It wasn't Luke's got cancer, it was Luke our son. You know, the, the Lord took Luke to be with himself, to himself in 2005. And Drummond wrote, reflecting a few years later after Luke's death, this is what he said. He said, our greatest fears can become our greatest blessings. Luke, you taught our little family the definition of love, resilience, and perspective. You ignited hope in everyone you met. You had Down syndrome, you were not Down syndrome. Your extra chromosome was extra charm. You know, for us, there might be things that you have in your life or things that you've gone through and experienced in your life that you are tempted to define you. It doesn't. It doesn't define you. You are a child of God, full stop. Full stop. Purchased with his own blood. You know, when, when we know that, when we walk in that, when we know, I mean, it, it changes who you are. It changes how you approach the world. It, it frees you. Jesus says who the Son says free is free indeed. It frees you. you. You don't have to worry so much about what people think of you because that's not important. What is important is what God thinks of me. And it allows you to cope with things. You know, guys, this is why this value is so important. Why it is one of the foundational things. It's what, what we have in Christ. 
You know, this, this last week, I, I spent some time with, with Paz. And he told me the story about Maria. And he said this, when Maria was, she went into Mary Potter house where she was receiving palliative care. One of the young guys working there, he was in her room and he was helping clean up and collecting food. And as he was walking out the door, he turned to her and he said, I don't know if you're a person of faith, but I want you to know God loves you. He didn't know who Maria was. He just felt to tell her God loves you. Church, there's only one message I have for you today and that I want you to know this, that he loves you and you're a child of God. If you've, if you've come to that point where you've, you've gone to the cross and you've laid your sin at his feet and you know that at that moment he took your sin and he gave you his righteousness, but he did so much more than that. He adopted you as his child and he has blessed you as his child. That's what you need to know. That's what we need to hold on. That's what we need to remind each other of. Church, let us stand. Let us pray. Lord Jesus, as we, we stand before you, we want to thank you that you call us in your mercy to be your children. Lord, we thank you for every spiritual blessing, for the riches of your glorious grace. Father, I pray, help us walk in this. Lord, as a church, remind us that we are a people chosen. We are the people of God, a royal priesthood. Lord, forgive us where we're tempted to think anything less, to think like an orphan and behave like an orphan. Lord God, we want to come back. We want to say thank you for calling us to be a son and a daughter. Thank you for your goodness and your kindness to us. Thank you, Lord Jesus, that the spirit that you've put inside us allows us to call you Abba Father. Amen.